John 7, 37 to 39, rivers of living water. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'll teach us from this passage what it means to come to Christ and how it is that we come and the, the benefits that you give us in Christ. We pray too, Father, that you'll teach us more about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and his work in our life, in our salvation, and in our sanctification. Teach us these truths and be pleased with what we learn to glorify your name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We're, we've now come to a section of Scripture, the second part of it, that is in verse 39, that has been a perplexing part of Scripture to many people. But before we reach that part, we are going to explain verses 37 and 38, Jesus' call or Jesus' appeal to the crowds at the feast to come to him, to believe in him, if they are thirsty. If they are thirsty, to come to him. In John chapter 7, Jesus is attending the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was an annual feast of the Jews to commemorate their journeys in the wilderness in the time of Moses, to commemorate their wilderness wanderings when they needed to live in temporary shelters. This was to commemorate the great provisions of God that God gave to them. He gave them food and drink in their temporary booths in the wilderness. Well, accompanying this feast was the great day of the feast, as it says in verse 37, the last day of the feast or the great day of the feast. On this last day of this one week long feast, it was the great day of the feast in that the people, after offering sacrifices from the first day until then, these sacrifices they offered in abundance. But then on this last day, there was a unique sacrifice that was specifically for the people of Israel. The one sacrifice on this great day, they gave particular attention to the meaning of that sacrifice for the nation of Israel, that God made provision for their life, their spiritual life on this last day. And as a part of this great day of the feast, this last day of the feast, they would take some water from a nearby place called Siloam, the pool of Siloam, which is mentioned actually in John 9, verse 7. They would take some water there bring it into the temple or the tabernacle by the altar in basins, and they would perform a ritual with this water. And because of the ritual of the water, Jesus takes an opportunity on this great day of the feast, not only the Feast of Booths, which partly commemorated the provision of water that God gave to the multitudes in the wilderness, but also here on this great day of the feast, this water that they would take from the pool of Siloam and bring it into the temple, perform a ritual with it to symbolize the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, the work of God's Spirit in the life of the people. The Holy Spirit was a symbol of water from old times, even from the Old Testament into the book of Genesis and onward. For example, it says in Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. From Genesis 1 verse 2 and throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, even into the book of John, John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit and water are used interchangeably. Water as a symbol 
of the Spirit. Water is used as a symbol of other things too in Scripture, but one of the primary ones is the work and presence of the Holy Spirit to purify and to cleanse the one who is receiving this pouring out of the Spirit or the sprinkling of the Spirit or even immersion of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's um, actual work symbolized in the water. That's the reason why Jesus focuses on water in our passage. In verse 37, he says, If any man is thirsty, and in verse 38, From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. The living water that Christ has is from the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit in the individual who is thirsty and whose thirst is quenched. Not in the biological and natural sense, but in the spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense, the soul that is thirsty will be quenched, will believe in Christ and be quenched because of the work of the Spirit in his life. That is the gist of verses 37 and 38. And then a further and special blessing that those who were to believe in him or those who had believed in him were to receive is in verse 39. And verse 39 has reference specifically to the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the gifts of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and subsequent to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. What we will see here is that the Holy Spirit was present from all eternity past. He was present in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis onward, throughout the Old Testament. He was even at work and present in the New Testament until John chapter 7, and even after John chapter 7. He was present and he was regenerating dead people throughout history before Acts chapter 2. He was also indwelling those that were saved. He was indwelling them, sanctifying them, granting them grace and power to live a holy life before Acts chapter 2. Those were truths, those were events and experiences enjoyed by the people of God, the elect of God, the saved, the believers throughout all time. It was throughout all time in the past and it will be throughout all time in the future. But in John 7, 39, the unique expression that we find there is John the Apostle making reference to the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's on the day of Pentecost that he means in John 7, 39. Now let's go back and delve into the verses a little more. In verse 37, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. Multitudes of people would be there. He was in jeopardy of being arrested or seized because they wanted to kill him. They wanted to put him to death. Verse 25 says, they are seeking to kill. Seeking to kill. They were seeking to kill him. And even Jesus says in John 7, 19, why do you seek to kill me? They wanted to seize him, to kill him. However, Jesus exerting courage, knowing that his time had not yet come to be arrested and to be killed and crucified on a cross. He trusts in the power of God. He trusts in the timing of God. He trusts in the wisdom of God and stands there in the midst of all the people, though his enemies are some of his hearers. Some of his hearers are his enemies. He says he stands in the midst of them and he cries out. He shouts out with a loud voice so that everyone can hear what he says. Now, if everyone hears, including his foes, if they hear what he says, is he not risking his life? Is he not risking the chance that his enemies might arouse a mob to arrest him and then to drag him away, to stone him to death? 
or to drag him away to the authorities, the Roman authorities, to order or to plead with them to put Jesus Christ to death, which eventually happened by John chapters 18 and 19. He was arrested and then put to death, but not at this point. Christ exemplifies courage by speaking forth what is right and true in the midst of the crowds, even in the hearing of his fatal enemies. He did so, which is a model for us to do so also. We should not think that we are greater than he. He was our teacher. He is our teacher. We are his pupils. He was and is our master. We are his slaves. Notice, he says in John 13, 13, John 13, 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus, as this perfect teacher and the highest master, he is the one who teaches us to do the same. And if he is our master and he tells us what to do, we are his slaves, we must do the same. If they hated him, they will hate us also. Yet, that should not stop us from crying out and saying what's right, doing what's right. Now, what is it that was so dangerous that Jesus shouted to the crowds? What is it that was so offensive that Jesus shouted out to the crowds? He says in verse 37, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, he who believes in me. And then what he's teaching, he claims to be in conformity with Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. What would have been so offensive? If anyone is thirsty, they ought to come to Christ, believe in Christ. Verse 38 clarifies, coming to Christ is believing in Christ, just like John 6.35 taught us the same. Coming to Christ is believing in Christ. So he's telling the crowds or appealing to the crowds to believe in him and not only to believe in him, but to do so in conformity to Scripture. He's claiming that he is the source of this life or this sur- the source of the ability to be quenched in your souls and what he's teaching conforms to the Old Testament. These are the twin truths or the twin claims that Christ announced to the crowds that caused him to be in jeopardy of his life. Believe in me and what I'm teaching you conforms to Scripture. The crowds, we will see next time from verses 40 to 52, they were wanting to arrest him because of these kinds of of statements because of these kinds of doctrines they were wanting to arrest him and even kill him it will also happen that way with us no matter what we say to people no matter how we say it they will come to hate us they will despise us and not want it even though we are drawing people to Christ or pointing people to Christ even though we are pointing people to Scripture, they will still do the same. It should not surprise us if that happens. 
like we said before, we are his students, we are his slaves. If they did it to him, they will do it to us. In 37, he says, if any man is thirsty, there is a condition for the fulfillment of what should be done based on that condition. There is a need, a condition, that of being thirsty. He does not mean physical and natural thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. This is obvious. He means if you are spiritually thirsty, then believe in Christ and drink of Christ. Come to him. Everyone is, in fact, spiritually thirsty in the sense that he has spiritual poverty. He has spiritual dearth. He has spiritual need. Everyone is that way. But the real issue is not whether everyone is that way, but whether he realizes he is that way. The real issue is when people hear the truth, when people hear the gospel, it's not necessarily the fact that they are thirsty. Spiritually, they are parched. They are dry. They are withering up and dying. They are that way. But the real issue is whether they acknowledge it, whether they realize it or not. That's why it's necessary for us to bring it to their attention, as Christ does here. He brings it to their attention that they are indeed parched. They are dry. They are withered. They are lifeless, spiritually speaking. We have to bring it to their attention, as Jesus brings it to their attention, that they are thirsty. If you realize you are thirsty, then come to me and drink. They have to come to that realization in order to drink of Christ. They have to. They have to do it in order to believe in him. The question then arises, how does this happen? How does someone get shaken or how does someone wake up from his sleep? Or if he is dead, how does one become alive if he is dead? If he's unaware, if he doesn't realize, if he doesn't recognize his spiritual condition? The answer is the Holy Spirit. It has to be the Holy Spirit. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 63 It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh cannot do anything. The Spirit has to do something. The Spirit has to quicken. The Spirit has to enliven. The Spirit has to give life to something that is lifeless and dead because the flesh cannot act on its own behalf to save itself. The flesh cannot act on its own behalf to save itself. It requires the Spirit to give it life, miraculous life, so that it wakes up, so that it's rising up from the dead. John chapter 3. John 3, verse 6. John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The flesh cannot produce something that the Spirit alone produces. The Spirit has to produce it for us to have spirit, to have that life of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As many as received him, verse 12, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God. Who are they? Those who believe in his name. Those who believe in his name become 
the children of God. They have this right or authority. They are adopted. They are adopted in the family of God. That's what happens. Everyone stops at verse 12. But we cannot stop at verse 12. We must believe, as it says in verse 12, to be children of God. But it does not say in verse 12 or in that part of the sentence how one actually does believe. What causes, what produces, what brings about this belief in the name of Christ? Verse 13 clarifies. We're not born of we're not born again because we are born of blood. Our lineage, our genealogy, our ancestry, none of that matters. Nor the will of the flesh. The flesh cannot produce belief and therefore become a child of God. It cannot. He says, nor of the will of the flesh. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. Nor of the will of man. No man can save another man. No man has the power, the authority to save another man. If it's not blood, if it's not the flesh, and if it's not man, how is one born? Born of God. When he says born of God, John 3 and John 6 specify that it is the Spirit of God that produces this result. The Spirit grants faith or belief, thereby we become a child of God. That's how it happens. If that's how it happens, did it happen that way from the day of Pentecost until the future rapture of the church, as some believe, between Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4? Is this the period in which the Spirit works to regenerate, as we have just explained? Or did the Spirit regenerate from the Old Testament and throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament? The answer is yes. The premise for this belief is in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we recall that Nicodemus came to Christ and Christ and Nicodemus have this dialogue. Nicodemus was supposed to understand what it means to be born again or to be born of God, to be born above in John 3. He was supposed to understand it, but he did not understand it. When he did not, though he was a teacher of the Old Testament, when he did not understand it, though he was a teacher of the Old Testament, Jesus confronted his lack of understanding and his lack of faith. John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and... You do not believe? How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus admits that he doesn't understand. Jesus confronts his lack of understanding and reminds him that he doesn't receive the witness and he doesn't believe, verses 11 and 12. He doesn't receive and he doesn't believe. He doesn't even conceive in his mind what Jesus means. But he had no excuse. The fact that Christ rebukes him shows Nicodemus had no excuse to overlook the work of the Holy Spirit 
in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit indeed does regenerate in the Old Testament. First example, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Thirty-six, twenty-six. Ezekiel 36. Let's actually begin at verse 25. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. The clean water that is sprinkled is not literal clean water that is sprinkled on every believer. Yes, clean water was sprinkled in the tabernacle and temple, but it represented the work of the Spirit in the life of the people. And that is made clear by verse 27. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. If the Spirit is in them, it says also in 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new Spirit within you. This new heart and new spirit is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the people. That's how they are saved. Nicodemus should have understood what Ezekiel meant. Ezekiel speaks of the Spirit quite frequently. So do other prophets speak of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the people. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. Verse 21. 59, 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Isaiah also preaches the Holy Spirit's work. He is on the people and he shall be on their offspring and subsequent generations. Subsequent generations of those who have entered into a covenant with God, according to verse 21. My covenant with them is that my spirit is on them or in them, working in them to save them and even to sanctify them, to cause them to walk in his statutes. Now, was this also possible in the New Testament before the day of Pentecost? We've seen a couple of examples in the Old Testament, but was this possible in the New Testament before the day of Pentecost? The answer is yes. Luke 11. Luke eleven, thirteen. Luke eleven, thirteen. This statement by Christ is certainly before the day of Pentecost. Eleven thirteen says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. If we ask the Father, He will give us His Holy Spirit. If He gives us His Holy Spirit, that must mean that the Spirit indwells these people before the day of Pentecost. Otherwise, He's putting out a statement that won't be true of them for a couple of years. You cannot experience it, but I'm calling you evil today, but in the future, 
Maybe you'll experience it. That's not what he means. He means that you can indeed experience the Holy Spirit in your life at that point. We've seen, therefore, that Christ, when he says that if you come to him and drink, that the Spirit's work would be evident in their life before the day of Pentecost. It was evident from the time of Adam until the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit regenerated and indwelt all of the saints. He regenerated and indwelt all of the saints from Adam until the day of Pentecost. Further, verse 38 says, From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. The rivers of living water. If we don't understand by the metaphor or the analogy, rivers of living water, what he means or who he means, John the Apostle makes it clear to us in verse 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Firstly, he's referring to the Holy Spirit when he says, rivers of living water shall come forth from us and produce things in us that were not there before. Because the rivers of living water, living water means not stagnant and dirty water, but he's talking about fresh water, water that has life in it and that can give life to those who partake of that water. That's the living water he means. And he means the Holy Spirit. This is also a reminder to us. If we don't understand what one verse says, just keep reading and the next verse may explain it. And that's what happens right here. But this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him, so they already believe in him, were to receive. That means it's yet future. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We will speak of this. He's speaking of a future event, the day of Pentecost. But let's go back to 38 and 39. Is it clear or should it be clear to anyone whenever the Scripture speaks of flowing rivers of living water, rivers of living water, that we are speaking of the Holy Spirit. Let's take Isaiah the prophet for an example. Isaiah the prophet and the role of the Holy Spirit. We'll go to a few passages in the book of Isaiah. We'll begin first at 32.15. Isaiah 32 and verse 15. He appeals to the people to repent and then he speaks of the benefits of repentance and the work of God in their life. 32.15 Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered as a forest. The Spirit being poured out. How is the Spirit poured out? From on high, from heaven, the, the Spirit comes forth and he pours forth into our life. And that which was a wilderness becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field becomes like a forest. So the work of the Spirit in a barren and parched soul individual becomes fertile and even as lush and widespread as a forest. A forest of large and multiple trees. Isaiah 41, Isaiah 41, 17 to 20, Isaiah 41, 17 to 20. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. 
I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. In 17, the afflicted and needy are the afflicted of soul and needy of soul. Not natural and physical need. He doesn't mean that. He's talking about a spiritual need, the need of the soul. Because he says in 17, they are parched with thirst. And in 18, he will open, God will open rivers on the bare heights. And this analogy again, a wilderness or a desert that doesn't have water, he's going to make it have plenty of water, which is our soul. He's going to do it. Did we see how often he referred to himself being the miracle worker? God himself being the miracle worker. Verse 17, I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. Verse 18, I will open rivers. 18, I will make the wilderness a pool of water. Uh, 19, I will put the cedar in the wilderness. 19, I will place the juniper in the desert. 20, that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. That which the soul needs is only provided by God Almighty. Only possible because God Almighty causes it to happen. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, 19. 43, 19. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. God, again, will do it. Chapter 44. Chapter 44, 1 to 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. This analogy of water is clarified in verse 3. He means the Holy Spirit. When he's pouring out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, it is the Holy Spirit that God pours forth on us. He says, on your offspring. On your offspring. On your descendants. It's God's Holy Spirit. This is what the scripture teaches. And we just saw a sampling of passages from the book of Isaiah. This is why Jesus said, the scripture said. In 38, he's not citing any one specific verse. That's why your Bibles are likely not capitalizing that sentence. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He is actually putting passages together that make this point. Passages such as the ones we have read in the book of Isaiah and perhaps even Ezekiel. These are the concepts he is bringing together and saying, Scripture as a whole teaches this concept. 
And that's what I'm declaring to you. Therefore, Jesus' teaching is not a new teaching. It is an old teaching that the people should have wanted, should have acknowledged, should have longed for to be fulfilled in God, specifically by the will of the Son and by means of the Holy Spirit. In 39, who will benefit from this? 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In what sense does Jesus mean this work of the Spirit? Because Jesus is saying it at this point, many interpreters have come to wrongly conclude that Jesus meant no one had the Holy Spirit in his life before this time. No one was saved by the Spirit before this time. And this time is the day of Pentecost. Generally, interpreters agree this is a reference to the day of Pentecost. Verse 39, a reference to the day of Pentecost. However, it's wrong to conclude, as we have seen in the last few minutes, that the Spirit did not exist or the Spirit did not work in the life of the people of God. He did. He saved them and sanctified them throughout the Old Testament. And he was also available at the time that Jesus was preaching this in John 7. According to what he said in John 3 and in John 6, he was there and working in a few of them at that time. So we cannot, from verse 39, say there is no Holy Spirit, there is no work of the Spirit in salvation and sanctification before John 7, 39. That is not what John the Apostle meant. What he meant was he was anticipating the day of Pentecost. That's what he meant. However, what has to happen first before that happens on the day of Pentecost? He says in 39, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. By the way, when it says given, your Bible may italicize the word given because it's not in the original language. Because it's not in the original language, there have been a few interpreters who say, it merely says, for the Spirit was not yet, meaning did not yet exist. But as I've been saying in this message, the Spirit existed from eternity past. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit was there to create the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not talking about the existence of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the presence of the Spirit in this special, specific way. That's what he means. And the, the interpreters or translators who say, not yet given, that is correct. We could say not yet given or not yet flowing or pouring forth. If we wanted to be more specific in reference to the day of Pentecost, not yet poured forth as an allusion to the day of Pentecost. That's correct to say it that way. But what has to happen before the day of Pentecost according to verse 39? Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was not yet glorified. How did he have to be glorified? Okay, look at John 12. What does it mean for Jesus to be glorified? John chapter 12 and verse 16. 12, 16. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these things to them. When he was glorified, they didn't understand at the time, 
That means he hasn't died yet, right? But after a certain point, then they understood. Let's go to John 12, 23. John chapter 12, 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life shall lose it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Do we see more clearly what it means for Jesus to be glorified? He's making reference to his crucifixion. He's making reference to God being glorified by him dying on the cross and rising from the dead for our sins. Well, after Christ died and rose again, he appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days. And then he told the disciples to wait 10 more days for the day of Pentecost for the promise of the Spirit. Acts chapter 1. Let's read this very thing in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, verses 1 to 5. 1, 1 to 5. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days from now. And then by the time we reach... Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Remember, Pentecost has reference to the number 50, meaning the 50th day from the time of Passover. From Passover to Pentecost, 50 days pass. And so, and if he was on the earth for 40 days, he ascended into heaven on the 40th day. Wait 10 more days, day of Pentecost. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Many and and an assortment of people are there, verses 5 to 13, from many parts of the world, understanding what the disciples are miraculously able to do by the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the opposition, the adversaries of the apostles, they are accusing the apostles of being full of sweet wine, verse 13. However, Peter stands up with the 11 to explain what exactly is happening. 214. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I 
will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He quoted Joel the prophet, the apostle Peter, in verses 17 to 21. This is from Joel 2. 28 to 32, which proves the point that Joel predicted this miraculous event on the day of Pentecost. Jesus told the crowds at the Feast of Booths that the day of Pentecost would come and it would be like rivers of living water. God would be pouring out his spirit on the believers so that they are performing these miraculous signs. This is what he meant. Those who were saved by the Spirit, who were being sanctified by the Spirit, would have this special outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Jesus predicted this in John chapter 7. This is what he meant by saying they were to receive him for the Spirit had to be given only after Jesus was crucified. God ordained that this outpouring, this special blessing would happen after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and specifically on the day of Pentecost for the Holy Spirit to be poured forth in this manner. This is what Christ said and meant. So, Are we thirsty and are we believing in Christ? Shall we partake of living waters and the work of the Spirit in our life? We must believe in Father, Son, and Spirit in the correct way. The true and living God, not idols, but believe in this Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true and living God in the correct way. May our doctrine and practice, may it not contradict Scripture. Because what happens is many people will speak in orthodox and sound terms related to the Father. They may be a little shaky on the Son, but they are very, very shaky and uncertain about the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, both in the past, but also now. Let's be very clear on what Scripture says. Let's partake of the Spirit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.